October the 8th arrived, 1942, about half past ten. A ring at the door. Who can that be now? asked my wife. This late of the night. The child was asleep. They had a cot next to us. I built the cot for the boy. I jumped out of bed and the street door opened. The light of a torch was shining in my face. I heard a man's voice shout out, Greenman? Greenman? Dutch? I said, yes. And up stormed two men. Two policemen in uniform, black jackets, Wellingtons. They said, get dressed and come along. So into the living room he went. I said, I don't need to come along. We're British. I showed him my birth certificate and a letter from the consul. I said, they're working for me. I expect documents. He says, uh, get dressed and come along. Don't argue about it. I was hoping my nationality would save me from being deported. Well, grandmother was crying. My wife was crying and the baby was certainly crying. I had to give in. We got dressed, picked up our rolled-up blankets. We had them ready in case, just in case. And we went down the stairs. In front of a house was a coach, and in the coach there were already some Jewish people. And a six-foot-tall young Nazi, a swastika band around his arm. As we got in, told me, sit down and quiet. And that went from street to street, collecting Jewish families. When the coach was full, off it went through the streets, across the river Mars, on the other side of the Mars, it stopped on a piece of land. On that land stood some large wooden huts, formerly used for goods from America, Europe. In front of hut 24, Lotz 24, that's Dutch for hut 24, which it's called now. After 50 years, Rotterdam is coming to the census. We must do something about remembering the Jews. The coat stopped before that hut. Our luggage were slung out on the ground. We had to pick them up and carry them inside. And as I came in, I saw hundreds of Jewish families, a lot of people I knew, and also about four or five SS soldiers. When you first meet Leon Greenman, you'd never forget him. I remember I met him at the Jewish Museum in London quite some years ago. Walking towards me was this little man, maybe five foot in height, very striking features, cheekbones that stood out and deep set eyes. You couldn't help but look him straight in the face. And then you reached out for a handshake and boy, did you know about it because he grabbed you like a vice. When people introduce themselves, they usually just say their name and, hello, how are you? Leon introduced himself as Auschwitz survivor 98288, Leon Greenman. And I think that says it all, really, because Leon never, for one minute, left the Holocaust behind him. I'm Ruth Ann Lenger, Programme Director of UCL Centre for Holocaust Education, and I was a friend, a close friend, of Leon. He had the most wonderful tenor voice, and it's Leon performing now. I came to know Leon very well and want to share with you stories from my friendship with him that have helped me better understand how he lived with the trauma of the past, what drove him to become an activist and force for good despite the suffering he had endured. 
but I always knew I would live a life through with a song in my heart for you. Leon had a lot of charisma. There's no doubt about it. And if you've got that little bit of sparkle in you, it never goes. Even what happened in the Holocaust couldn't crush completely that little bit of va-va-voom. <laughs> and Leon had this little bit of sparkle and the twinkle in the eye to go with it. He could have been a wonderful performer. He never got the chance. But after the war, certainly in his elder years, he returned to singing, which he loved. One of Leon's favourite singers was the Austrian tenor, Richard Tauber. With his film star looks and his swooning voice, Tauber was everybody's pin-up in the 1920s and 30s. This is him performing Dein ist mein ganzes Herz. Leon would sing at every opportunity, whether he's invited to your wedding or your child's bar mitzvah or whatever, he would look for the opportunity to burst into song and be a performer for you, whether you'd invited him to do it or not. He would sing with great gusto, often these love songs, and you couldn't but be enthralled by his performance. When I used to hear him sing these beautiful love ballads, it would take me back to when he tells of that moment that he met his wife, Elsa. Such a romantic story. Leon and Elsa met while Leon was performing at a concert, singing these wonderful love songs. She walks in. She gazes up at the man on the stage. He's singing to her. And she falls in love. She goes home and she tells a friend that she's staying with, I've met the man I'm going to marry. When Leon tells this story, he's got a smile like a Cheshire cat from ear to ear. He says he didn't know that was going to happen. She did. And then the romance began. Fantastic, eh? Singing saved Leon's life in so many ways. When he was older, I think it served as a momentary release from the trauma of the Holocaust. He was never completely free from that. But in the camps, he would perform his beautiful love songs in front of the guards for a few extra spoonfuls of soup. He used to tell me about the sheer agony of starvation. After I received my half a litre or three-quarter litre soup in my own barrack, I used to wander out and go to the other barracks, go inside the other barracks and ask the capos, can I sing some songs for the prisoners? And if the capo said, yes, do it, three or four songs I sang. And then if there was any soup left, they gave me some soup. I did a three or four barracks to fight my hunger. I saved my piece of bread every morning for the afternoon and ate my soup or shared my soup with some of my Dutch friends that I had. Anything... To keep going. Leon needed to cling on to evidence of the Holocaust and evidence to support his testimony. He was desperately worried about denial, 
and about distortion long before denial and distortion were talked about in such depth in educational circles. When going into his home, you would see this because he surrounded himself, cocooned himself with evidence from the Holocaust. Every time he would go and visit a camp again, taking school groups, he would bring something back. He brought back things from the camps when he left Buchenwald in 1945. He brought back a spoon. He brought back his camp uniform. He brought back a small box which contained ashes from the ground and he kept it in his home. What I have in here is some ashes. When Buchenwald liberated and I was free to roam about, I found myself in front of the ovens. I looked into the ovens and I saw their remains, ashes, bones of people. And when I turned around on my other side, the left-hand side of mine, there stood four large wooden containers filled to the top with ashes. And I couldn't help taking some of the ashes and saving them. These are the remains of some victim. When he did die, we buried this material with him, which was his wish. And I feel very comforted by that. We put a plaque at the foot of his grave, which says, also here lies remains of unknown victims of the Holocaust found at Buchenwald in 1945. At the Jewish Museum, we put on an exhibition about Leon's life. This was early on, I think before the Imperial War Museum opened their exhibition about the Holocaust, certainly before the National Holocaust Centre in Laxton opened, and it was Leon Greenman and his story. It became extremely popular. People were coming from far and wide with school groups sometimes a hundred at a time, to view the exhibition, which took them through Leon's story before the war, during the war, and a little bit after the war. Often, Leon would join them touring his exhibition. In fact, often I would introduce the group to the subject of the Holocaust, take them through the exhibition, work with them on some of the objects that we had. Then at the end of that program, I'd say to them, Actually, we've got a special guest here today. Would you like to meet him? It's Leon Greenman. Their excitement at the thought that Leon himself was in the building generated terrific atmosphere. At that point, Leon would come in. And from the moment he walked in, you could hear a pin drop. Young people, 14, 15-year-olds and their teachers became lost in his story, embracing every inch of the story. Sometimes schools would ring up in advance and say, listen, we're bringing 30 instead of 35 because we're holding a few kids back because we don't think that they are mature enough to handle this. And I'd say to them, bring them. Leon would start his story and those students especially seemed to be completely at ease and embracing what Leon had to say. And I often wondered why it was that Leon had this ability to help young people better understand the Holocaust and to see its relevance to them as individuals and also to feel the importance of the moment that they were actually coming to meet someone who was there. 
who saw this with their own eyes and was bearing witness to them. And I feel sure that there was something about the way he connected with young people where there was an equal relationship going on. He spoke to them completely as equal human beings. It doesn't matter they were young people, they were coming with their own experiences of life. It's as if he recognized and valued what they were bringing to the encounter. This is Vicky O'Kelly talking about the impact meeting Leon had on her life. Vicky now teaches the Holocaust and took part in our Beacon School program, which developed schools' expertise in delivering Holocaust education. I believe I first met Leon when I was 14 years old, which I'm not going to give away exactly how many years ago that was, but it was a fair few years ago now. Leon was coming to school to talk to our sixth form students. and My current RE teacher at the time asked if he would mind talking to his GCSE RE group at the same time. And he was willing to, and he did. I went in to listen to him speak. I have a very clear recollection of sitting on the floor almost directly in front of him and sitting and watching and looking up at this man, hearing his story. The impact there has had such a knock-on effect for the rest of my life. It's really quite difficult to explain quite how important this man became. I then chose to follow A-levels in religious studies and history. I chose then to take that further, all because this man, at the end of his speech, someone said, why are you here? Why is it that you want to tell this story. He stood up and he said, I'm here to tell you so you can tell your children so that this never happens again. And that has stuck in my mind. And X number of years later, I have followed that through and become a teacher myself. And that's what I say to my children now when I say to them, boys, girls, this is why we study this, so that you can speak out. I really learned a thing or two from Leon in terms of pedagogy. Often he would give his testimony with a lot of detail, detail that I as a teacher thought perhaps was a little bit too graphic, a little too shocking. And sometimes I try and steer Leon away from answering some of the questions until it dawned on me that I should step back and let those young people ask the questions they needed to have answered and let Leon do what he needed to do. And that was to tell his story, and that my role should be therefore to support rather than to censor what can and cannot be discussed in the room. I'm reminded of a story with one school group. There was about a hundred people in the room. They'd all gone to the exhibition. They'd learnt about Leon, and here he was walking in, and he was telling his eyewitness account of what happened to him in the Holocaust. One of the things he was telling them about was the death marches and what damage that had done to him in all manner of respects, one of which was his toe after the war had to be amputated because it had got gangrene and it was rotting away. Once he told his story, I opened the floor to questions from the students and one student piped up, please, Mr. Greenman, may I see your amputated toe? Now, in all my stupidity, I thought, wait a minute, no, 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 I better steer this child away from this question. It's too graphic. No, it's too shocking. I don't want to upset Leon. This was going on in my head. Meanwhile, 
without me noticing, in a split second, Leon had already got his shoe off and his sock off, sticking his foot in the air for the student to see. And the students had virtually clambered all over me to see the void that was Leon's amputated toe. And it really taught me a lesson. And that is that young people need to see evidence. So images or photographs or objects or testimonies may be graphic and may be difficult. But if it's presented in a way which is careful with its own context, it shouldn't be prohibited. Students need to see it. And from the survivor's point of view, from Leon's point of view, he needed to show it. It wasn't because he felt the students didn't believe his story. He needed to show the evidence. He turned these signs of his survival into symbols of triumph. So his amputated toe, the tattoo on his arm, he couldn't wait to be asked, can I see your tattoo, Mr. Greenman? He couldn't wait. I could tell. He rolled up his sleeve to show his tattoo and he would show his forearm with its muscles and everything. There would be the tattoo. And those students, they peered at it long and hard. They needed to see it. They wanted to see it. Personally, my experiences taught me that 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds are far more resilient than perhaps we think. And that the Holocaust taught well taught carefully, taught sensitively, with survivor stories or stories of the victims as human beings. This approach helps to understand the reality of the Holocaust without traumatizing. Leon suffered from nightmares, as many survivors do. And as he got older, he often slept in the afternoon too. Again, he'd wake up with a start with nightmares. He relived the memories in his dreams. I remember speaking to him about it and him telling me that he deals with it by drawing the images that came to his mind so he can recapture them. It's as if they drifted away during the day, but in his dreams, they came back to haunt him, to nudge him awake and say, you remember, don't you remember this happened? Don't you remember that happened? And so he'd pull a piece of paper together and a pen and he would draw what he saw what he relived. And I have in my possession a pile of the most terrifying images that he drew. He wasn't the greatest artist, but who's to say what art is? When you see these sketches, they tell you what happened in the Holocaust, clearly. The images often look very childlike, and the faces of the victims often look like Leon. They all have these high cheekbones that he has and the deep-set eyes. The images depict the most terrible scenes of hangings, of people being starved. There's one picture that he eventually made into a painting, arriving in Buchenwald after the death marches and these naked bodies clawing and clamoring towards a tap which is dripping little drops of water these bodies trying to find the energy to reach the tap to get a drop of this water, these starved, emaciated bodies. And they make for very disturbing viewing. There's one drawing, which again he makes into a painting, 
which records the last moment he sees his wife and child as they arrive in Birkenau in January 1943. The train stopped, quite, were half asleep, half dozing, and then a loud shouting, Aussteigen, schnell, schnell, alles lassen liggen, der Raus, der Raus. I understood a little German. We had to get out, leave everything lay, get out as soon as possible. So we got up and we stood there outside the train, waiting. And as I stood, I looked in front of me, I saw a heap of snow. And here and there through the snow, I saw corners of suitcases. I said, else look at that. The snow gets into the suitcases. Everything will be spoiled, wet. What a waste. Now, I did not know then that the people that came before us left their suitcases there. They were no more. And we had to leave our blankets. Maybe we can collect our blankets later on. A normal thought. And there we stood. And then we walked a little way up the platform all together. There were 750 of us. And then the SS sergeant separated the women to the right and the man stood where we stood. And all of a sudden, one of the women started to cry and shout. And she walked away. She wanted to be with her husband amongst us. And halfway, this SS had a club in his hand. He let the club come down on her head. The poor woman fell to the ground and he kicked in the tummy. A thing I'll never forget. Immediately, he turned around to the men, put the club on our shoulders and counted 50 men. 50 men. And we had to march away. Everything went so quick then that we had no thoughts about this woman. But the picture I'll never forget. And we marched. 20, 30 yards and we had to stop. The road is still there because I've been seven times to that same place. And I looked to the right and I see a truck come along. And the truck stops in front of us. And I can see a lot of women and children loaded. And in the middle stood my wife and child. Now I know that's my wife and child because I see the face. I call her name. She couldn't have heard me. She didn't make no movement. She'd heard me because the engine of the car was making a noise. But my wife had made clothes from thick velvet curtains, red velvet curtains, the fashion in Holland at that time. She had cut them up and made two garments and left the top into pointed heads like Father Christmas, sticking up one for her and one for the baby in the arm. And those two points were looking at me. And then it went, the truck went, and I never saw them again. It's quite a remarkable drawing, and I have it here at home. I haven't had the courage to use it in educational setting, to work with teachers with it. I'm not sure how quite to do that. And I hope that fantastic teachers that work with us at UCL Centre for Holocaust Education might perhaps form a working group to help me think through how that resource can be used. It's just a phenomenal painting. Leon often struggled with loneliness. I feel he really needed a woman's love. He needed that looking after, but he also needed that romance in his life. He was a romantic, yet he never remarried. He never engaged properly in any sort of romantic relationship. 
And I don't think he ever could allow himself that pleasure. I think he felt that should he do that, it would be a betrayal of not just his love for his wife, but also it might indicate perhaps that somehow he was healing from what had happened, that he was perhaps forgetting what had happened. And for Leon, he could never allow himself to forget that his wife and child had been murdered in the Holocaust. He could never do anything that you would describe as fun or giving yourself a little bit of indulgence. We all like to indulge ourselves. Not for Leon Greenman. He almost didn't think he deserved to have happiness again. It's been partly a lonely life, but I don't tell the outside world. Well, that won't help me. But I'm still alive. At 60, I retired. I had to do something. I still was studying my singing. After the war, I went into show business. I appeared on the Dutch television and radio. You see up there, the photographs. I had a little taste of show business. My height was against me, otherwise I probably would have been a Tom Jones or something like that. But I'm not a pop singer. I'm a romantic singer of ballads. And I gave that up because I wanted to continue with my lecture work on the Holocaust. My first lecture was already in 1946, a few months after I came back out of the camps for the Maccabi Club in the east end of London. And then I had to look for a living. So during the day I was on the markets and during the night I went singing in the working men's clubs to earn a few quid here and a few quid there. Then I made up my mind to retire and to go into the schools and universities and colleges telling them about the Holocaust. And I did. And I still do. I've been doing this over 25 years. Thousands of youths know I heard me. And I'm still fighting Nazism after 50 years. Leon, for some reason, was able to find within him the fortitude to go forward and lead the way in this respect without having the institutions and the care behind the scenes to support him. He did it of his own accord. And he did it because he made a promise to God, to himself in the camps, that if he survived, he would live his life giving testimony so that this will never happen again. And that's what he dedicated his life to. On meeting him, you knew instinctively that you have met a giant of a man, even though he only came up to your shoulder. You just knew it. Leon lived a very frugal life. He owned a house in Ilford, Little Terry's house, but he never had central heating. He just had a two-bar electric fire in one room. Now, he's 97, and when I encourage him, I say, at least let's get some modern heaters for you, Leon. Let's put electric radiators in each of your rooms so that you don't have to be cold when you get out of bed. No, 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 no. You would have none of it. Why would I do that? I've had it like this for all these years. I'm perfectly okay. Why would I want to have a modern invention like an electric radiator in my home? Leon had glaucoma for many years, but even with his glaucoma, he would only use economy watt bulbs. 
he'd never splash out to get the lighting that he needed. Instead, he placed on the landing floor silver paper, recycled silver paper. He'd open it up, flatten it out, and place it on the landing. Now, I have to say, I didn't know why this was. I went to visit him and I just let it go. But it did start to worry me after a while. Leon is in his 90s, silver paper on the floor, on a landing with a staircase nearby. He could slip and fall down those stairs on the silver paper. So I said to Leon one day, Leon, let me pick up the paper for you. I will clear it up for you. Well, he got very angry with me and he said, no, 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 you can't do that. And it was only then I discovered that he used that silver paper to reflect the light, the little bulb he had in the ceiling, to give greater light rather than install a more powerful light bulb. Now, there's not many people who would go to those lengths to economize. It's really important that this doesn't come across as Leon being mean in any way. Far, far from it. Leon couldn't be more generous a human being with his time, with anything he had. But he would look for economy. He'd look for ways to make do because that's the only way he could operate. He couldn't bear to be extravagant when he could be economical. He just wanted to have the necessaries in order for him to carry out his mission. Revenge does not bring back the dead, does not take away the suffering, it simply perpetuates the violence. It is difficult to get convictions. The question is not to let it happen again. I have tried to rebuild my life. A new life? I have no children, no grandchildren to cuddle. Have I succeeded? I don't know. Being too busy with this work seems to be my mission. That was Jack, a student from Litham St Anne's High School, one of our Beacon Schools in 2020-2021. This poem was written by Leon and it appears unfinished. We use it in our teaching programmes and encourage students to grapple with its meaning and respond to it or possibly create their own final stanza. I found the poem in Leon's house after he'd passed away. He'd asked me to go in there to sort out his affairs and his paperwork. As I was doing so, I found a little piece of paper and on it the poem that you've just heard. Leon was not easy to befriend and I have every respect for him. But he was difficult. He could be argumentative, strident in his thoughts And that's not always easy to befriend because there's some reciprocity in the engagement of a friendship. You open yourself up to a friend. You show your vulnerable side. The problem with Leon is that after the war, I'm not sure whether he trusted any human being on this earth. And that made it difficult to get close to Leon, I guess. He had many admirers, thousands of people who knew about Leon Greenman, who would say, oh, he's like a grandfather to me. But actually, Leon didn't often see people, and that's not to blame people. Leon was hard to befriend. Leon didn't do small talk. His small talk was about the Holocaust, and it could come from nowhere. 
I remember going on a journey with him to Birmingham, driving up the motorway, and we were talking about boxing because he loved boxing. He used to be an amateur boxer. This is where he got his strength from, his body strength, which you could still see in his 90s. He still did 30 press-ups every day at the age of 95, which is quite incredible. He loved boxing. So I thought, let's talk about boxing. We'd be talking about that, but the next minute he'd be telling me a story about what he saw in the Holocaust. In this case, I remember him telling me as I'm driving up the motorway a story about him being experimented on by one of the medical team under Joseph Mengele. And he starts talking about it in great detail. I have to stop him and say, Leon, do you want me to drive you safely to Birmingham? If you do, you're going to have to stop talking about this and talk about something else. So the rest of the journey, I don't think we talked about anything. He just couldn't do small talk or lightweight conversation. And that makes normal friendships quite hard to sustain. You had to have a real understanding of where Leon might be coming from. Let me not mislead you in thinking that Leon was always surrounded with the Holocaust and at a low ebb. No, he had the most cheeky, dry sense of humour that would shine out from time to time and often take you by surprise. While he was attending to his exhibition at the Jewish Museum, he used to go every Sunday, sit in the exhibition as one of the living sources. I would often go lunchtime to take him some soup to warm him up. The exhibition was in a controlled temperature and in the winter it's quite cold. And I used to make this soup, Jewish chicken soup usually. So I'd take it there on a Sunday. He'd stop for a half an hour, come into the offices and take it. He never used to comment on the soup. He'd just expect it to arrive. He'd also like me to sit with him as he had the soup and never a word of thanks or something like that. I didn't do it for that, of course. But you know how it is sometimes. You wouldn't mind a thank you here and there. So one day, as he was drinking the soup, I said, Leon, he didn't look up, just carried on. I said, how's the soup? He didn't really register, just carried on drinking. But eventually he said, I've had better soup than this in Auschwitz. He looked up, gave me this little smile and carried on drinking that soup. Now, most people would be pretty shocked and horrified by that. But it was his little way of giving me a cheeky bit of humour that says, it's fine, thank you very much, but don't expect to thank you again. It was funny. It was very Leon, and we loved him for it. Leon passed away in 2008 at the grand age of 97. I was privileged to be with him at that moment. My long friendship with Leon gave me, and in turn, our centre, the UCL Centre for Holocaust Education, a rare insight into how he lived with the trauma of the past and what drove him to become a force for good, despite the suffering he had endured. Every day, Leon felt compelled to prove he was worthy of his survival. And so it is right and proper that he should have the last word. I hope that the future generation, wherever they are, used their own thoughts for the mankind and goodness of the world. Don't let them believe everything they hear said by governments. Examine it for yourself. But certainly stay away from fascism, racism, 
Nazism. In other words, stay away from hate. It's not necessary. You are a human being. You haven't asked to come into this world. You were made. And while you're here, do the right thing. Create love, understanding, and that will create happiness. And I hope one day there will be no more war and everybody will have sufficient to live a happy life. That's my dream. I hope it can happen. With a song in my heart I approach your adorable face Just a song at the start But it soon was a hymn to your grace When the music swells I'm touching your hand It tells that you're standing near And at the sound of your voice Heaven opens its portals to me can we help but rejoice that a song such as ours came to be? But I always knew I would live life through with the song.